So today's episode is going to sound a little bit different. We have a different recording setup and this one's going to be a little less structured with more of a casual discussion feel. We will be back to our normal structure and recording quality next episode. Content warning. This episode contains brief mentions of suicide, harm to children, and abuse. Throughout the episode, we are avoiding haunt spoilers for Betrayal at House on the Hill so that we don't ruin the game. So, listen freely whether you're new to Betrayal or have played every haunt twice. A dread chill descends upon the house, and mist rises in lazy coils from the floor. A voice clatters through the air. I must rest. Put my soul to rest or die. As the words fade, the spirit board you are carrying begins to throb, matching the rhythm of your heart. Looking down at the board, you see the mist coil into letters on its surface. Kill them all. Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a Haunted House podcast. I'm your ghost host, Laura Casey, and this is my Haunted Spouse and co-host, Ben. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about the board game, Betrayal at House on the Hill. And speaking of haunted houses, in our house today, we appear to have a tiny poltergeist. So if you hear any noises in the background, Don't worry, it's not in your head. We were first introduced to this game at a friend's Halloween party in 2016. So shout out to that friend who introduced us to the game and screw you and your souped up ox bellows. For those of you who don't know, in this game you play as a group of explorers who are making their way through a mansion that builds itself as you explore. So you're always exploring essentially a randomly generated layout. Uh, And as you explore, you uncover various events and omens, ultimately culminating in the second half of the game, which is known as the haunt, in which one player is often revealed to be the traitor, uh, the titular betrayal at the house on the hill. And then they are acting in opposition to the rest of the players who are known as the heroes or the survivors. Hold on. I'm sensing a presence here. A strong presence. Maybe more than one. Yes, there are two spirits here. Two restless spirits with us tonight. Spirits, tell us your names. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Katie. Welcome, spirits. We are so happy that you have found us here today for this important discussion. So, let's get into the time period when the game first came out. So this was 2004. For those of us who weren't alive then or don't remember, some things that happened then that might stand out to you are, this was the year that Facebook initially joined the internet just at Harvard. That's scary. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, This was also the year 
that Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson played the Super Bowl. This was the year that George W. Bush was reelected for his second term. And popular movies that came out in 2004 are Mean Girls, The Incredibles, and The Passion of the Christ. One of those movies is good. <laughs> we'll let you guess which one. <laughs> so what is, uh, does that bring up uh, some memories of a certain period of time for all of us here? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, some, some things that I am happy to remember and others that could just slide into the back burner for uh, several more decades. I'm good with that. Okay, so we're in 2004. Let's talk about the history of the game's creation briefly. So, Betrayal at House on the Hill is published by Avalon Hill Games. A brief history on them. They are known for their war games and strategic board games. They were founded in Baltimore, Maryland in 1952, and in 1998 became a subsidiary of Hasbro Interactive. Um, after Hasbro sold Hasbro Interactive, they kept Avalon Hill, which would eventually, in 2004, the year Betrayal at House on the Hill first edition was published, Avalon Hill became a subsidiary of Wizards of the Coast, which is itself a subsidiary of Hasbro. Some of you may recognize the name Wizards of the Coast. They are known for a couple little games called Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. And actually this year, in January 2021, Avalon Hill became a subsidiary of the newly created Hasbro Gaming. Betrayal at House on the Hill was designed by Bruce Glasgow and developed by Bruce along with Rob Daviau, Bill McQuillan, Mike Selinker, and Tewin Woodruff. Um, those were the main ones I've come across. I've seen some conflicting information, especially as there have been different editions, but those were the main ones I saw. First edition was released uh, in 2004. A second edition, which is the version that we played just last night, and the version that we'll be talking about was released in 2010. There was an expansion released in 2016 called Widow's Walk, which added a new floor, new tiles, cards, and haunts. And Zach and Katie, I believe you two, uh, or at least one of you in particular, may have some thoughts on the Widow's Walk expansion. Well, having new floors and new items was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that aspect of the expansion. But the haunts seem rather convoluted. <laughs> it's as if the expansion was all of the alpha content that they didn't include that they're giving back to you now. It doesn't feel finished. Much mm. like the house. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> but maybe not so much in the way they were hoping or intending. The haunts get very confusing and then slowly you descend into madness as you're trying to sort out who's doing what and what exactly your power level is and um, it gets interesting <laughs> <laughs> so you the player descend into madness as your character loses their sanity <laughs> or you just embrace it like I do and then if you're the betrayer you cheat <laughs> not well, tell anyone if they don't make it clear then what are you supposed to do <laughs> exactly 
And that is one thing, this game is noteworthy for having a rather extensive errata of clarifications on game rules. For those of us who don't know, what is errata? <laughs> Basically what I just said, clarifications on game rules. Uh, whenever a game is published with unclear guidelines or if questions arise or if there are misprints, then you will have errata published that provide official explanations in order to uh, quell any disagreements. A rather humorous example of errata from the first edition was the underground lake house tile was misprinted as an upstairs tile. <laughs> so they had to then print a correction saying that either for flavor you can say that it is a floating lake <laughs> or you can just play the piece correctly as a basement tile and say that it collapses down from the upper floors into the basement. I like a floating lake. I want one of those in my house. Right? That sounds fun. Is that like an infinity pool? Yeah, that's kind of what Ooh. I was thinking. <laughs> High class. Luxury. Uh -huh. Ooh, now I want like a haunted... Like, haunted houses are always like Victorians. Why don't we ever see like modern... I don't know. Give me like a mid-century modern haunted house. <laughs> or like a, like a mod uh, modern where oh, you've yeah. got like all the clean lines and like infinity pools and things like that. The or smart house turns evil. <gasps> I wonder if that's a thing already. There's a Disney movie called Smart House where yeah. the house actually turns against them and tries to keep them trapped because she goes crazy a little bit. <gasps> mm -hmm. That sounds like maybe an episode in our future. <laughs> that would be an interesting one to get into, yeah. So the game comes with some pre-made characters with pre-made stats? Yeah, so every character has physical and mental stats. Their mental stats are sanity and knowledge, and their physical stats are might and speed. And there are only six figures, but technically 12 characters. So every character sheet is essentially reversible, and you can play one of two characters who use the same minifigure. They also each have their own backstories, which don't necessarily play into the actual gameplay very much, but I think they're kind of interesting because they're all different archetypes that arise in various haunted house stories, and all the characters are actually all connected to each other in various ways, uh, whether by knowing each other from the library or mowing the lawn various things like that. Uh, I won't really get into those because it doesn't really make a difference, but I thought it was interesting. When I first played, I didn't realize that these characters had backstories, but then it turns out that they're all actually interconnected. Are they all, each character connected to every single one of the other characters, or is it more like character A is connected to character B and C, C is connected to D and E, that kind of thing? Yeah, more like that second one. The first two Flip sides, I guess, are Father Reinhardt, who is a priest who hears many confessions, but every few years, a man sits in the confessional and whispers of murder and madness. 
And lately, Father Reinhardt has found himself beginning to agree with the man. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this actually plays into each of these characters in their bios. It lists what their fear is. And Father Reinhardt fears going mad. Interestingly enough, he is also the character with the highest sanity stat. So afraid to lose uh, that which he has. Doesn't want to lose the one thing he's got going for him. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then the flip side of Father Reinhardt is Professor Longfellow. Uh, who is of proud aristocratic roots. Uh, his family had money until his dad lost it. And he now lives with his aging mother in their rundown Victorian house. And it notes that his mother has a large life insurance policy, but he doesn't want to collect on it anytime soon. <laughs> and his fear is losing everything and being no better than his father. So very haunted housey trope there of the family that is rich and powerful and loses it all. In another story, his own house could be the haunted one. All right, so the purple character, we're going to start with Jenny LeClerc. So she's 21 years old, quiet and shy, but her fear is being trapped in a crowd or lost out in the open. This could be related because she was abandoned by her mother 14 years ago. Now on the flip side, so you can either be Jenny LeClerc or you can be Heather Granville. Now Heather is 18 years old and her bio says she's perfectly petite, perfectly blonde, and perfectly polite. Imperfection gives her a headache. Uh, if you can't guess, her biggest fear is of not being perfect. Hmm. <laughs> is there I any? don't know anyone <laughs> like that. <laughs> Who might deal with that? No. Uh, <laughs> this is not a relatable character. <laughs> they really need to work on making the characters That's more right. relatable, I think. Gives me a Mary Poppins vibe. Practically perfect in every way. <laughs> As the brawny character card for this game, we have Ox Bellows and Darren Flash Williams. Ox Bellows is your strong, bulky person, and his biggest fear is the dark. He often has haunting memories of the time where he beat someone up who didn't deserve it. Ooh. <laughs> and then Darren Flash Williams has the highest speed in the game, he loves to run, but when he's not running, he feels like something is going to catch him. And his biggest fear is being caught by the not good thing. It follows. <laughs> it's a very common trope. Flash is getting around. <laughs> so for the experienced woman trope, we have Vivian Lopez, who's 42, and Madame Zostra, who is 37 years old, nay, Belladina. Vivian Lopez would love to get up late, have coffee and donuts, and ride her horse all day, but instead she spends her time keeping her used bookstore afloat. But sometimes she contemplates burning down the store, the shutout back, or the school. She would never do it, but she has nightmares about striking the match and thus fears fire and her own fascination with it. 
Madame Zostra, is a tarot and tea leaf reader. She will never read her own cards because she is afraid of seeing her own death reflected in them. And then we have Peter Akimoto, who is 13 years old, loves the basketball court, and loves being under his house looking for bugs because he wants to be an entomologist. And also loves being under his house because he can avoid his five older brothers who bully him and have broken his arm before. Aww. Yeah. He fears being trapped somewhere and never being able to escape. Aww. Yeah. So, but we do also see the continued trend of in a lot of these characters, their fear is also tied to the thing they love or is in some way connected to it. Because he likes being under his house, but he fears being trapped places. Right, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, so seemingly contradictory, but also very true to life, I think. On the flip side, we have Brandon Jaspers, 12-year-old who loves his computers and camping and doesn't like quote-unquote regular toys. And he hates puppets. This is the, the puppet trope. He had a clown po puppet. He had a clown puppet that would move overnight and once even had a knife. Though it may have just been his older brother. This Maybe. sounds like evil <laughs> elf on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Nope. Exactly. Nope. Cross us in the corner. <laughs> it's just Chucky. He needs to take that over to the woman who likes burning things. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and our last character is Zoe Ingstrom. She is eight years old, and she likes to play with her dolls. Sadly, she sees a lot of her father abusing her mother, and she is afraid of the boogeyman. That is her biggest fear. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> Baba Yaga. <laughs> Uh, but her mom goes to Madame Zostra, so that's a tie into another character. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of this last piece, we have Miss DeBoard. Now, Miss DeBoard is nine years old. Missy. Missy! <laughs> <laughs> Missy DeBoard. She is nine years old, and she wants to be a doctor. Her fear is of dead things coming back to life and hurting her. She likes to cut up dead frogs. That is her pastime <laughs> interest. <laughs> and actually, a little bit of flavor, one of the things that Missy and Peter do is she likes to pretend to do medical exams on him and check out his actual broken bones. Kind of a, I don't know, neat how they overlap the stories there. Although she doesn't like when he shows her his bugs. Great. So that is all the characters. We're going to take a quick break. And then after we come back, we will have a discussion about the haunted house elements we see in the game. So the creepiest element for me in this game has to be the little girl character. That, <laughs> that is just a trope in, I feel like, almost every haunted house, haunted movie, just anything like that. It is, there's a small child 
and they're singing or using their tiny little voices and being terrifying. Whispering sometimes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this character, she's carrying a teddy bear and the teddy bear, I don't know if it's the painting. It it looks almost like it's a stitch, but it could be the teddy bear is holding a dagger. We've debated <laughs> on this. We don't mm-hmm. know. Um, Probably got it from the clown puppet. Yes. <laughs> They've been fraternizing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, this game definitely leans into the children are creepy trope. Yes. Uh, because in fact, one of the omen cards, uh, and in fact, the way the omens work is sort of once you, without getting too deep into the technical bits, once you have enough omens, the haunt is triggered based on the combination of the omen and the room the omen occurs in, and that determines which haunt you get. And one of the omens is finding a girl, (laughs) like finding a child. And yeah, there are a variety of other events that involve just creepy children. Yeah, when do you think that became a thing? Because so far, I don't think in our history recounting that we've encountered that. But it's definitely a big thing in The Shining. Yeah, 1980 in The Shining, Uh those two terrifying little girls and the kid riding the tricycle. Mm -hmm. The two girls Uh weren't in the book, were they? Does anyone remember? Yes, because they were the the children of the former caretaker. (gasps) Oh, you're right. Mm -hmm. And at least in the movie, you also get a little bit of the, just because a room was a room once, doesn't mean it's always going to be that same room. Mm -hmm. Like, the house doesn't always seem to have the same orientation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, <laughs> I'm probably going to keep jumping in with these little tidbits just because I did some <laughs> research and things like that. There is even an event card. Please tell me it's the Lazy Susan card where you <laughs> stick one of the floors and then you spin it around. <laughs> uh, there is not one of those, but there is a card called What the? <laughs> <laughs> And basically what happens is you walk into a room and the room is suddenly in a new location and you are actually supposed to move the tile to a different part of the house. Uh, So yeah, you definitely get this. The house itself isn't even static once you've revealed parts of it. Mm -hmm. And there's the magic elevator. With the magic elevator, it's a room that you find And then you can choose to go to the magic elevator at any point. And when you're there, you roll two dice. And based on the number of pips shown, the elevator goes to a certain floor of the house. Now you have free reign to choose what room it attaches to, but the roll decides, are you going to be in the basement or the main floor or the second floor? And you take damage if you roll too low if you roll if you a get zero. A zero i'm assuming mm-hmm. because it's implying that the elevator just dropped mm-hmm. very uh tower of terror uh yes oh yeah <laughs> and that is a consistent theme as well of random things happen in the house that hurt you even if you didn't do anything wrong mm-hmm. yeah sometimes events are you. Mm-hmm. yeah you walk into the room and you see something happen and are injured in some way mm-hmm. physically or mentally by <laughs> a thing that happens when you walk into the room uh, also it is called the mystic elevator ah. i was gonna say magic elevator <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Uh, but having a haunted elevator, I feel like, is also a common theme of, you know, people getting either cut in half or, you know, from mm. all... I will still, in an elevator, I will bend my knees because of all of the scary movies I've seen where people break their <laughs> legs and, you know, the elevator all of a sudden slides down. But I'm sure it doesn't even make a difference. <laughs> elevator falls i'm i'm dead jumping when the elevator hits the floor will not save you yeah. uh, i think there was a mythbusters wasn't there i think they put buster on like a pogo stick or something just to be double sure uh-huh. <laughs> did he break his legs i don't remember <laughs> i don't think it ended well either okay. way okay <laughs> oof yeah i i think you also have the element of um it being an enclosed space too because some people are afraid of elevators in general yeah. as well um, not even because of the up and down nature but the small enclosed space nature well, and there is even a whole uh, for better or worse M. Night Shyamalan film that is a horror movie that takes place in almost entirely in an elevator what's the premise? I mean there's a reason that it's not memorable the premise is these people get stuck in an elevator it's implied that there's maybe some weird demony stuff going on because the elevator or like the security people see some weird demony like stuff going on in the recordings that they're trying to watch. Stuff happens to the people who go to try and fix the elevator. Like the people in the elevator, I think, start like being punished for their sins. So it's like a haunted elevator that has some morality components. Yeah, a little bit of a yeah, a little bit of that. Reminds me of the platform, which is something else entirely. Yes, <laughs> a whole different I'm type of haunted elevator. Still, just case. gonna block that one out of yep. my memory. Thanks yep. very much. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think about it like at least once a week. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's uh-huh. great, but I hate it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Definitely got that disturbing factor down pat. (laughs) Well, and there are some things in the house as you're generating it where you actually kind of leave the house. It's like you ended up in the garden Mm. and Mm -hmm. things can happen there. Like You get an event in the last time we played where some ghost appears and hits you in the face with a shovel Mm. and then disappears. Mm -hmm. And even though the thing isn't actually there, you still take damage. That's a rather common thing on a lot of things of, well, the ghost isn't there, but it's still hurting you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it even almost plays into both both sides of that trope. Because um, that one is the, the groundskeeper card. And so, A, haunted house trope, the groundskeeper. Is uh, like a ghostly <laughs> member of the house rather uh-huh. than a character. Uh, and then I believe for that card you have to attempt a roll, and if you pass, they disappear, and all you see is their tracks left in the dirt. And if you fail, they reappear and thwack you with a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the ones that didn't come up in our game, but that I found interesting, especially in relation to our uh, classic that we keep coming back to uh, Haunting of Hill House, uh, there is a card called The Beckoning. And if you are on one of the second floor rooms that is open to the outside in some way, you have to attempt a roll to avoid jumping out of the house. 
without getting into too much of the story of Haunting of Hill House, because we did that in that episode, but anybody familiar with the story will know that that type of beckoning is very familiar to some of these haunted house stories. That even comes up in Rebecca, which isn't... Most people wouldn't consider that a haunted house story, but there's definitely a metaphor of haunting. Mm. Mm. Um, And then there's also that uh, call of the void. Yes. Going into a trance-like state that you can't resist and... Yeah. Yeah. The Conjuring is another really good example of kind of that trope where sometimes it seems like the house is just gaslighting you, mm. but then there hits the point where the ghost or the haunting thing kind of takes over the character and leads them to doing X, Y, or Z. The mechanics of it happening in The Conjuring are a little gross, so I won't take you through <laughs> that, but that is another example of that trope of the haunted thing takes over the people in the house similar to the traitor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think the traitor was taken over by the house or did the traitor already come in planning to betray? I would have to say given the randomness of how the traitor is chosen in the game, it's a matter of like the house has gotten evil to the point where interacting with this omen thing allowed the house to use you as a conduit almost. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, too, it depends a little bit on the haunt, because sometimes the haunt reveals the true identity of the traitor, and other times it's the traitor discovers something and are possessed or succumb to the whims of the house. and Or teams up with the monster. Or teams up with the monster. <laughs> or becomes the monster. Mm-hmm. Or becomes the monster. Your character actually just is no longer a character. You were just playing the monster. Mm-hmm. One thing I enjoy about playing this game again and again and again is that it's always different. You Mm. never know what room you're going to go into next, and you don't know what event is going to be tied to it. Um, For me still, I think the scariest event is the Jonah one. Yes. Two boys are playing with a wooden top. Would you like a turn, Jonah? One asks. No, said Jonah. I want all the turns. Jonah takes the top and hits the other boy in the face. The boys fall. Jonah keeps hitting him as they fade from view. (laughs) Kids are creepy. (laughs) They're terrifying. (laughs) I was thinking it was going to be... For some reason, I was thinking it was going to be like a cursed board game. (laughs) But I might be thinking of something else. Well, and that's where I wonder, too, because the actual mechanic for that card is if an explorer has the puzzle box, they discard that item and draw a replacement for it and gain one sanity. Otherwise, you take one die of mental damage. So I'm not sure what exactly is going on there if the puzzle box is in some way related to... Maybe it's like an offering to Jonah. Yeah, like, like if you're giving it to Jonah. Take the toy, it's yours. Make all of the turns now. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's fine, man. Just back <laughs> off. <laughs> if it's that important to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is one of those ones where just watching it happen will cause you to take mental damage. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. Will affect your sanity level. Mm-hmm. Well, and that actually comes up in one of my favorite horror movies, Room 1408, where some of the things that the guy sees as that movie is going on cause pretty significant psychological distress. And the general goal of the room is getting you to a point where you kill yourself, but it does it through kind of just psychological manipulation to get you there through you seeing disturbing things like that. Mm-hmm. Ah. Mm-hmm. Ben and I had talked a little bit about how there may be a difference between a house that is haunted by a poltergeist, which is kind of how I would classify paranormal activity, the movie Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. um, versus a house that's more a psychological haunting, where rather there being its own entity, its own monster, or even something with a, a brain, I guess, where the haunting happens is that it infiltrates your psyche and causes you to change your mind and to have feelings or desires or choose to behave in a way that is not true to who you actually are. Yeah. A la The Shining. Yes. Exactly. Perfect example. In Paranormal Activity, is it demons or a demon? Oh. Or is it... Is it... I was under the I've never seen it. I've never seen it. <laughs> I watched not it in like sure. 2010. <laughs> I know that's very shameful as a spirit, but um, <laughs> I have not seen that movie. Yeah. But one of the links that I like with this game in like 1408, it very much as you're playing this game, seems like the house is out to get you. Yes. Like you are not supposed to be here. The house is trying to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And one of the main characters in 1408 actually comments that the room is just evil. Hmm. Like it's there's no ghost, there's no poltergeist. The room is evil, and I get that feel a lot when we play through this game. Of even when we think we're making the right choices, sometimes the house just oh well. Now there's no floor, and you're going to fall down into the basement and get trapped and take fall damage. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So rather than it being as a result of what you've done, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes. It doesn't matter what you did. You're getting punished anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel as though if this house is giving you such a message of get out, um, <laughs> I don't understand why my character decides to keep going into new rooms. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be at all my reaction. Mm-hmm. I'm now picturing it's your turn and you just are having your character exit the house. (laughs) And that will be my turn for now. (laughs) Bye now. Good luck, you guys. (laughs) Well, and maybe, I don't remember if there's an exact flavor about why you can't leave if it's like the doors swing shut or something along those lines, maybe. But I wonder if a little bit of it, too, is a... A, the only way out is through type of situation mm. where you have to fight your way through to hopefully get back out in the end and solve the mystery. We're talking about the Shining-esque like, change in how you act. Maybe it very much is a once you're there, you just don't want to leave. That's mm. a great point. That reminds me of this theme kind of comes up a lot in fairy tales and folklore 
where there is some kind of treasure and the cost for the treasure from the outside perspective, you would say, oh, that's totally not worth it. Like stop being greedy. But then when you're around the treasure, it causes you to make poor decisions mm. and you end up sacrificing what actually matters to you for the sake of the treasure. And I wonder if that temptation theme also plays a part in the house or if the house will take advantage of the greed that we already carry <laughs> inside of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that comes up a lot in different movies and different horror games. That just common theme of if you are an outside observer, it seems like nonsense. But as the player or as the person in the movie, there's no other option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the game, uh, there will be times where you might discover something like a, a closet or a vault or something that you can decide to roll to see if you want to open or not. But sometimes there are consequences for mm-hmm. if you fail that role. Um, but sometimes you can almost kill your character trying to get that, <laughs> trying to get whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And even we as players, we keep trying to get to the thing, even knowing if I mess up again, I could die. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want that treasure. Well, and even some of the items that you can pick up give you a buff when you hold them but you lose more than you gained if you lose that item um i'm trying to think which ones there are i think there's one that does it with your mental skills and i think there's one that does it to your physical skills where you gain a lot by having it and lose even more if you no longer have it which really encourages you to hold on to it uh, especially once the hunt begins and the players are at odds. It's very much all magic comes with a price. Yep. Uh. Nod to once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets a little into the realm of the items themselves being haunted in addition to the house. Mm-hmm. They've I'll... taken on the evil of the house almost. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or potentially were involved in the evil of the house. Because some of these are like, uh, I think there's like a ritual, a sacrificial dagger. um, Or like, obviously the puzzle box. I think it was implied that the children were probably playing with that at some point. It's very fun when you all of a sudden get through you know, half the game, and then you are the betrayer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was me all along. (laughs) I hid it from myself. (laughs) Well, that that is another interesting part about this game, is that it, it does do, like, not only is your character being forced into doing these things, you as the player have no choice about whether you are the traitor or not. It's just you get to that part of the game and once the haunt starts, that's just it. You're stuck with what you uh, end up with. With the cards you drew. Exactly. Uh, And you're sent off into another room to read the traitor's tome while the survivors read the secrets of survival. And yeah... 
Ben is a much better person than most of us because I had no such moral dilemma. When I was the betrayer, I was like, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to destroy you all. <laughs> You're in my house now. Oh, how the turntables. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One event that, given the nature of our podcast, I think we would be remiss to not include is the night view card in which you look out and see a ghostly couple in wedding clothes walking around and they are the previous inhabitants of the home and you attempt a roll and if you pass they will tell you about the house and you will gain some knowledge about the house. That is so, so spooky. Yeah. Very thematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like that tie-in to the history of the house and the whole thing of like ghostly couples and weddings because there's always a wedding. Does <laughs> the gates ever actually tell us why wedding. we're here in the first place? Like why we all came to this house? We were discussing this. I don't this. think yeah. we ever actually get an explanation. <laughs> uh... We're just camping in someone's house. We just took it upon <clears throat> ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Like, unless maybe it's <laughs> Professor Longfellow's house, because he lives yeah. in an old Victorian. Um, but I don't, I don't think it is, because there's no mention of that. But, like, he's the only one with a spooky house, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as far as I'm aware, we don't get any reason. Maybe that's up to the explorers to make up. Ooh. And it might be based on uh, the members of the party. I don't know. Maybe we're door-to-door sales team. We're selling vacuums. Yeah. We're door-to-door sales family. (laughs) With a bunch of traps. Uh-huh. I'd forgotten that there's an instance I can think of at least involving spooky children from further back than The Shining, actually further back than anything we've touched on yet, and that is The Turn of the Screw, which I keep wanting to call The Turning of the Screw, but that's not correct. It's also not The Taming of the Shrew. Um, (laughs) The Turn of the Screw features two children and their governess, and some spooky things that happen at Bly Manor. And maybe we'll touch on it later this season. I don't know. <laughs> so I wanted to save these till the end because rather than being an expansion like Widow's Walk, they are actual different versions of the game. Um, one of which released in 2017, was a Dungeons and Dragons themed version called Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, which sounds like a really cool spin, and I would be interested to see how they incorporate that. Um, Another one that I find really interesting is Betrayal Legacy, which, from my understanding, there are a genre of board games called legacy games that involve multiple iterations, each of which causing essentially permanent changes to the game 
environment as you progress, and I believe we have some people here who have experience playing the Betrayal Legacy version. Spirits, come on down! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It focuses on you rather than having a character for this instance or this instance or this instance. You're a family. Like, your family is, like, this character's family, so you're their lineage. And so sometimes, maybe whatever your ancestor has died in a previous game, sometimes you were the traitor and you won, sometimes you were the heroes and you won. But each iteration of the game, sometimes there are family heirloom sort of things where an item gives you extra bonuses if it belongs to your family, and the owner of the house changes, but it seems that whether or not the traitor wins or the heroes win has an impact on the house itself. You add certain cards, you take certain cards away, certain cards get destroyed. There are some things, there's actually a box that says, do not open this until told to open it. And so we still don't know what's in it because the people with whom we are playing, we haven't gotten to that point of the game yet. But I think that if the traitor wins, and I could be mistaken here, the house gets more evil because when we last played, there was an instance where the traitor had won, we played the next iteration, and we got a haunt where the heroes could not win. <laughs> That's so spooky. So I think that it continually impacts the evil level of the house the more you play and change things and shift things mm-hmm. but it's a lot of fun yes very like a, a new level of being able to interact with features in the game like with certain heirlooms you can write in and name what the heirloom is called oh. or um, there will be times where it will say destroy this card and you're literally supposed to tear the card up <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's a lot of fun. That is cool. I feel like that feels very true to the haunted house genre too, like almost even more so than the standard game, because so often these haunted house stories are generations of things that have happened that keep building on themselves and self perpetuate. And get worse and more complicated as the repetitions continue. Yeah. If you're worried about destroying board game sacrilege, no worries. Our friends have a destroyed card envelope. They don't actually destroy the cards. (laughs) They don't follow directions. (laughs) That just sounds like big board game trying to get you to buy more copies so that you can get the cards back. I can't wait for them to come out with one that has a built-in Ouija board so that you can just go ahead and call the spirits while you're at it. (laughs) There we go. I think Hasbro sells that. It's called the Ouija board. (laughs) Just holler. We're around. Uh, And there has been one more version released, and this one I find really fun. I don't know. I would like to try and get a hold of a copy. But in 2020, they released a Scooby-Doo version where the playable characters are... You're shaking your head! <laughs> Zach is not into the Scooby-Doo version. 
It's the opposite of a horror movie. <laughs> I, I will say, I do get the sense that the Scooby-Doo version is kind of meant to be like a junior version of the game because the rules are a little more relaxed. Um, the haunts are based on episodes of the show. The player characters well, are you know the, the characters. Well, then you know what the ending is going to be every time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they Fair. didn't catch the bad guy this episode. They just kept taking the mask off. Mm -hmm. Does the bad guy end up killing you in the Scooby-Doo version? Or does does the bad guy unmask the gang at the end (laughs) if they lose? Yikes. Yikes. Um, But, yeah. One of the things that I found most interesting, and this is what really makes me wonder if this is... Like, if this is aimed at children, is someone can volunteer to be the traitor... So I think the idea being that if you were playing with younger kids who maybe aren't skilled enough to play alone as the traitor, someone, probably an adult, can volunteer to play the traitor and then the kids can be on a team together. Um, so I think I don't that's know. so sweet. Yeah, I think it's some, some cute flavor on top of the game. I have to be honest, I'm super interested in this, and I think we should try to get it. Yeah. Alright, our first rating is spookiness on a scale of 1 to 5. How spooky is Betrayal at House on the Hill? I would give it at least a 4. Um... Four and a half. (laughs) I'm sure there's something that is more spooky than this game but um i don't know what that is because i have not played it yet Uh, i love the features that everything is unexpected and it's always different i think i'm gonna give it a five honestly it pulls in so many spooky tropes and can go so many different ways that i think it really embodies spookiness in all its forms. I will have to go with a three and a half. (laughs) How spooky it is, I think, is largely dependent on the environment in which you play. Ah, yes. Mm. If you're playing at noon, in the middle of the day, not that scary. Last night when we played, we had the lights off with a hanging lamp, a little spookier. So I'm going to go with that three and a half. Mm -hmm. And the music. And the music. I'll go with a four and a half. Because I'm assuming that you are playing it under the spookiest possible conditions that you can create for yourself. (laughs) Um, Or at least it has the potential to be played in that way. I'm not giving it a full five, though, because I think what would be spookier would be an actual Ouija board. I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) On a scale of one to five, how haunted is Betrayal at House on the Hill. If we're going down the line of just the haunted house trope, I would definitely say between a four and a five because it seems continuously as if the house is trying to get you to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that checks out for me. This house is definitely haunted. I haven't encountered any haunts in which it is not haunted. So, in my experience, yes, this is a five. It is very haunted. 
<laughs> I would agree, because at a certain point, the game itself says, let the haunt begin. Don't think you can get more haunted. <laughs> yeah, I'm also going to have to give it a five for haunted, because there are 50 different haunts that you can get in this game. Uh, so I'll give it one for every ten haunts <laughs> that you encounter in this game. And finally, on a scale of one to five, how spousy is Betrayal at House on the Hill? And let's start with Ben this time. Ooh. I am going to give it a three. Because there are a reasonable number of references to spouses. For instance, our, without getting into too much detail, I don't want to spoil any haunts, but our haunt last night even involved a wedding. And so it has plenty of references, but there's also so much content in the game that it's not a huge proportion of it. So, three. I'd say a two. You know, the um, uh, card that you read earlier with mm. um, the, the couple whose house we're in. Um, and then, yes, uh, some of the cards, like the ring, like there's a little bit of reference to it. Um, no characters, though, with marriage, so a two. Hmm. That was exactly what I was thinking as well. <laughs> I would give it a two for the exact same reasons. Nothing else to add. A two sounds to be about right. The council has spoken. <laughs> it is it decided. Is decided. <laughs> Okay. Well, that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored Betrayal at House on the Hill. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five spook review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser or anywhere where you can rate podcasts. If you have comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. Zach and Katie, where can people find you? Well, you can find us aimlessly wandering the cemetery on Walnut Street. Or you can contact us using your local neighborhood Ouija board. <laughs> and you can find us haunting social media at Haunted Spouses until we escape this mortal coil. Thanks for listening. And remember... The mists fill the house now, from top to bottom. You glide through them, as silent as the ghost hovering by your side. Your heartbeat slows and stills. Silence. Now there are two spirits destined to haunt this place together. Forever. <laughs>